But I just want to begin by thanking everyone for, uh, who, who particularly who stepped up and allowed for the elders and interns to be gone to the Nine Marks Weekender this past week. So thank you especially to Ken and Keith and Ben and anyone else who, who just really just kind of stepped in and, and bore the mantle of responsibility. Uh, obviously it worked because the building's still here, you're still here, the chairs are still here. It, it, it apparently went off. So I'm thankful for that. I, the, the Weekender was, uh, was refreshing. It was motivating. It was a time for us to feast and, and to soak up and really stir us up and renew our minds to, to come back here and to lead this church to fulfill its mission and for us to pursue maturity in Christ together. Now, if you're not familiar at all with Nine Marks Ministries, Nine Marks Ministries is all about building healthy churches. And so part of what we learned and discussed during that weekend was actually very similar to what we've been covering here through this series, Local Church Leadership. A big part of of this is just really focusing on how do we think about leadership? How do we think about church government? How do we think about service and commitment to each other in the gospel? How do we think about decision-making? Or in short, how do we think about polity, church polity? And so it's both fitting and slightly ironic that the Weekender takes place in Washington, D.C., the very epicenter of American democracy. But my, how our understanding of democracy has changed over the centuries. Just walk through the Jefferson Memorial and you'll see the stark contrast that a few centuries can display. And that misunderstanding has bled its way into the church. I'm indebted to Nine Marks, and I'm indebted to that time we had at D.C. to reflect upon government and culture as we think this morning about something that's very pertinent to all those things, congregationalism. That's a word that often receives a little wah, wah, wah after it, but it's really good, really important for us to think about. And so far in this series, we've explored the office of elder We've looked at their qualifications, the responsibilities of elders. We've, we've talked about what a blessing it is that we have a plurality of elders and not just one and how that's God's good design and gift to us. We've looked at the office of deacon and what it is deacons are actually supposed to do and how they serve the church so well. And let me just encourage you, if you have not had a chance to listen to those sermons, please go back and do that. Now, you can get them from our website or from our podcast. You will be helped tremendously by listening to those. Very, very practical, very, very relevant for us to think about. Now, we need to turn our attention to the office of the congregation. And you heard me right. I said office. I'm calling the congregation an office. You are part of an office. One of the biggest reasons why we go wrong in thinking about church government and thinking about authority, thinking about decision-making and service is because we don't understand what it means for us to function as part of a congregation. We fail to understand what a congregation is supposed to do or what a congregation is for. Well, friends, let me just tell you right up front, church is a whole lot more than a weekly time of worship where we gather together and sort of do our personal devotions publicly. It's far more than that. And when we think about decision-makings or authority, maybe you've thought to yourself just kind of in your own experience that the congregation is basically silent and that authority to make decisions is left to some higher select group, whether that be a diocese of bishops, some assembly or synod or presbytery or session of elders, or maybe some denominational board. Maybe you thought to yourself, it it actually fell on the shoulders of one person, whether that be a pope, a president, or a sole pastor. Or maybe, maybe you grew up kind of on the other extreme, 
Like where you, you just kind of view congregationalism as a spiritual form of American democracy, touting freedom of speech, personal autonomy, capitalistic individualism, and that pastors and shepherds must submit to the vocal majority no matter how wayward or sinful the sheep are. Well, friends, let me just assure you right up front that none of those are the correct ways to look at church government. None of those accurately portrays the function and purpose of the congregation. And so this morning, we need to take time to learn what God's word has to say about congregationalism, how we should understand our place within the governing office that is the congregation. That's the question that we're seeking to answer this morning. What's my place in this office that is the congregation? And I pray that what we come to understand and embrace from our time together this morning is that the congregation is an office whose job is to guard the who and what of the gospel. The congregation is an office whose job is to guard the who and the what of the gospel. Now to see this, we're going to look at a lot of texts this morning. And because I love you, you will see the reference and the page number up on the screen so that we can follow along together. Now to better serve our time together, I want to break up that big idea into three responsibilities, three primary objectives that the congregation has. These are the three responsibilities of the congregation uh, that, that comprise what we are to do. And they are that we are to guard the what of the gospel, the who of the gospel, and the we of the gospel. Okay, so first of all, the what of the gospel. Now, this actually comes as a surprise to most, but the local church, first and foremost, not the denominational leaders, not simply the pastors or elders, and not some nerdy Bible scholars in some seminary tower somewhere, but the local church is responsible to know and to guard the doctrine of the church. We, the entire congregation, are responsible to guard the gospel. Now, this is shocking because most people have a very low view of doctrine. Many times they think that doctrine divides, therefore we should throw it out. Or or maybe they think that doctrine is optional, that you can take and leave as, as little or as much as you want. Most people go through life thinking that Christianity is only a matter of personal belief that I can basically pick and choose what I want to believe, what I want to adhere to, and as long as I call myself a Christian, then I am. But friends, that's just not true. You see, we do not get to determine what is truth and what is not, what is right and what is false, what is doctrine and what is not. We don't get to define Christianity on our own terms. Christ does, and we are obliged to follow him. This body of doctrine, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is an objective, authoritative reality that stands outside of us, that we are responsible to know and to guard with our very lives. And to do that, we are called not just as individuals, but as a congregation. Let's see this from from text. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 20. You can find it on page 822 in the Bibles there in the chairs. In this passage, what we're going to see is Jesus beginning to pass his authority on to Peter and the apostles who will then pass it on to the church. And this authority is given by way of a doctrinal confession. So let's read beginning in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And he did that because they did not yet understand the purpose of his suffering, death, and resurrection. Now notice here that Jesus begins this passage with a question. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And responses are given. Even wrong responses, right? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In any response you give to that question, it is a confession of faith. Do you get that? Everybody here has a confession of faith about Jesus. And it's based upon how you answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Right? Whether it's right or wrong. I mean, let that sink in. We all have a confession of faith regarding Jesus. No matter what your background is, no matter what you believe about him, whether you think that he's simply a moral teacher or some prophet, or even if you go to some extreme of just saying, you know what, he's some mythical figure that people made up. That is your confession of faith regarding Jesus. When you say, I believe that Jesus is fill in the blank, that is your confession of faith. Okay? We all have them. Right or wrong, you have a confession. So it really comes down to, are you right or are you wrong? Now, Peter steps forward as a spokesman for the 12 apostles and as the first person in salvation history to make the right confession, to make the true confession about Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the true and right confession that we are called to understand and adhere to. Now notice Peter, uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Peter, Paul, whatever, Jesus' response to Peter here. He doesn't congratulate Peter. Hey, good job, Peter. You're obviously a very moral and wise person. Spiritually, you got it together. You're a mature man. You've got it all figured out. That's not what he says at all, right? What does he say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see what he's saying here? Look, that confession that you just made, it's not given by man. Man doesn't come up with that. Man doesn't figure that out. That is given by my Father in heaven, the God of the universe who made and sustains all things. He has revealed that to you. That's how you know. That's how you made the right confession. So Peter was blessed because God did a work in him, enabling him to make that true and right confession. And so this confession is not just a confession about Jesus. It is an authoritative confession because it comes from our heavenly father who must open our eyes to reveal it to us. So let that sink in. So when we go back to that question, who is Jesus, right? These answers are not on the same plane. If you answer, well, Jesus is just a moral teacher versus Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, they are not on the same plane. You get that, right? One is authoritative, one is right, one is true, the other is false and condemnable. And so one comes from flesh and blood, the other comes from God. One is wrong, one is false, the other is right and true. So let me just ask you, how does your confession compare with Peter's? If nothing else, walk away answering that question today. Now, people have gotten really hung up on verse 18, right? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, I could, I could spend a long, long time right here. I'm going to try to be brief as possible, Okay. This is the first time where we see the word church appear in the New Testament. And so when he's talking about church, what is this church built upon? Is it built upon Peter? 
Well, yes and no. Right? Peter was obviously the first among equals here. Right? He's the one that stepped forward and made this confession. And we see uh, from, from the centrality of his ministry in Acts chapters 1 through 12, of course, then it begins to wane, right? You've got James, who's now the first among equals in the church of Jerusalem. The story then turns to Paul. Paul wrote most of the, the letters of the New Testament, but Peter did contribute with First and Second Peter, right? But the church was not built upon him. You see, Peter was a fallible man. And in the very next passage, verses 21 through 23, Jesus tells his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised from the dead on the third day. And Peter then dares to rebuke the Christ, the son of the living God. You get that, right? And Jesus responds so nicely to him. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Friends, let that sink in for a minute too, right? When you stand in opposition to Christ, either by your life or by your doctrine, Christ considers you in league with Satan. That's scary. Now, Peter, I mean, he doesn't have it all together. He would later deny the Son of God. Three times that during Jesus' arrest and trial, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul publicly rebukes Peter because he's contradicting the implications of the gospel because he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles in the presence of the Jews from Jerusalem. And so Peter is not this infallible rock upon which the church is built. The Catholic church has missed the point here. He's not some infallible authority. Now, he is a key figure in the history of the church, and God has used him mightily to build the church. Right? He has a significant place in salvation history as the first confessor. But the ultimate rock that the church was built upon was not the confessor, but the confession. You can't separate the two, but it's built upon the confession. The gates of hell may at times prevail against a man. And the gates of hell will most certainly prevail against every false confession. But the gates of hell will never, ever, ever prevail against the true and right confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And it is that confession, that what of the gospel that ultimately serves as the, king, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What are those keys? It's the confession. And when will he give those keys? Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. It is through the true and right confession of faith in Christ that the gates of hell are bound and captives are freed from the snare of the devil. It is through that authoritative confession that as we go as fishers of men, making disciples of all nations, seeing them brought from death to life and transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. It is through that true and right confession that we, the church, do discern the truth from false teaching and can identify a herald from a heretic. And it is through that authoritative confession that we discipline those whose lives do not reflect the gospel which they profess. And the church has been given the keys and the keys are the what of the gospel, that true and right confession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we've been given. Now, what that means is that the church, the congregation as a whole then, must guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our first ambition. It's not left up to some apostolic succession of popes or simply by saying that we adhere to some ancient creeds like the Nicene Creed written so long ago. It's not the responsibility of some outside hierarchy to dictate to us what we must believe. 
The plurality of elders of the church, they're to lead, they're to teach, and they're to live in accordance with the gospel. But it is the responsibility of the whole congregation to know and to guard the gospel. You need more proof? Let's zoom out for a minute, okay? Let's just think. Have you ever noticed that as you're reading through the New Testament, of the warnings given to false teaching, that they're giving to the whole church and not just the leaders. You ever notice that? So for example, during Jesus' ministry, he warned all of his disciples many times to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Almost all of the letters that Paul, Peter, and John wrote, with the exception of First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, were written to whole churches. And even those other four that were written to specific people were called to be read aloud among the entire congregation so that they heard. And so what that means is that the whole church, these warnings and admonitions against false doctrines were given to the whole church, not just the leaders. I mean, even the warnings of, against false teaching in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation were given to seven churches. A great example of this is Galatians chapter 1. If you would, turn there. It's page 972. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In this passage... Paul begins by introducing himself like he always does. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There's my authority to say what I'm saying. And to all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And he gives this salutation there in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then, boom, he starts in. Right? I am astonished that you, churches in Galatia, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says, look, I I preach to you by the authority of God, the one true gospel. I was the one who came and appointed elders to your congregation. But church, listen to me. You whole church are responsible to know this gospel and to guard it against distortions and false teaching. To get this wrong is to be accursed. You local church are responsible for your life and for your doctrine. Do not get, you you do not get to pick and choose or to blindly follow someone who comes in and seems to have credentials or seems to be wiser than you. You have to know it. You have to live it. No, we all have to work together to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, let me turn this to you. You cannot preserve what you do not know. You can't preserve what you are distorting and turning away from either by your life or by your confession. Paul would remind us later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it's page 996. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, friends, this was true in Paul's time, and it will be true until Jesus returns again in glory. And it is evident as we look around in our culture. It is far too easy for those who profess Christ to drift 
toward what appears to be societal norms. I mean, just look at the homosexuality and gay marriage issue. Right? That one issue alone. We're seeing a lot of drift by those who made to profess a version of Christ, but they don't know or hold fast to his doctrine. But friends, as alarming as that is, when we look at our culture, when we look outside of us, there's a far greater danger that we must be aware of. You see, there is a tendency within us all to set our minds on the things of man rather than the things of God. Not to endure sound teaching, but rather to accumulate teachers that suit our own passions, our own desires, our own whims. And friends, we're guilty of that in hiring, in paying for, or even just consenting to listen to poor or false teachers We're held responsible for that. If you're sitting there and some guy is spewing blasphemy and you sit there, you're basically saying, I approve of this, right? So if I'm I'm spewing blasphemy, you have permission to get up and leave. Better yet, fire me. We all must be careful not to turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into falsehoods. And it is far, far too easy to do. Now, we have labored very hard here at Redeemer to work against that tendency. That's why we have a clear doctrinal statement, two in fact. We've got our statement of faith and we've got the Baptist faith and message. That's why when we go through our membership matters class, we make sure to cover our statement of faith to make sure people agree and understand what it is we teach and adhere to. This is why we have those foundations courses in the evening, which I encourage all of you to attend. That's why I preach long expositional sermons. And not only do I preach long expositional sermons, I actually teach other people to do the same thing. This is why we do sermon application in our community groups. This is why we practice family discipleship and train parents to teach their kids. This is why we actually teach our kids rather than entertain them upstairs. Because we know that we have this responsibility to preserve and to guard and to adorn sound doctrine of God. Friends, the local church is to be a pillar and a buttress truth. And we want to be careful to do that. And friends, it can't happen unless we all take responsibility to guard the what of the gospel. So that's our first priority, to guard the what of the gospel. But second, we are to guard the who of the gospel. You see, the church has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and those who truly hold to this confession of faith in Christ are now citizens of that kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But we're not there yet, are we? Look around. Is this heaven on earth? I don't think so. But when God does this work in our hearts to reveal the gospel of glory, we become citizens of heaven. We currently find ourselves still residing in the same place that we did before. Like a country that used to be our home but is ours no longer because we are now citizens of a new kingdom where Christ and Christ alone is king. And we now live in allegiance to him. Or at least maybe I should say we are called to live in allegiance to him. We are, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be ambassadors for Christ. And so here we are, ambassadors for Christ, citizens of another kingdom, residing as sojourners in a country that is no longer our home. We live for it no longer. We have taken up our cross, denied ourselves, and we follow Christ. Now, I'm indebted to Jonathan Lehman for this analogy, but in the midst of a foreign land, the church is to be an embassy. An embassy flies a different flag. It makes the rule of one kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, 
present and visible inside of another kingdom. And so if you were in another country, say you were in India, and your passport expired, the only way that you're going to get out of that country is to go and get a stamp on your passport from the embassy. Now, the embassy does not make you a citizen, right? It doesn't make you a citizen. Of course, neither do you. You are a citizen either by birth or because the government itself allowed you to go through the process of naturalization. But you don't make yourself a citizen, and neither does the church. But it is the church, the embassy, and not your profession that affirms your citizenship. You see, you cannot renew your passport and board a plane just because you say so. Your passport's there, you're, and it's expired, and you're just like, you know what, I want to go get on this plane to Chicago because that's where I'm from. They're going to say, let me see your passport. You show them your passport, it's expired. Tough. Go to the embassy. That's what they're going to tell you. Right? Your profession means nothing apart from the stamp of the embassy. The church is meant to affirm who is and who is not a gospel citizen. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, page 835. This is the great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples, the citizens of his kingdom. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's the king who has the authority to make citizens of his kingdom. And what is he doing? He's giving out that authority to the church. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's your stamp on your passport, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded you. There's that ongoing renewal of your passport. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As the church goes out with the gospel, with that confession, they make confessors. They make disciples of Christ. They naturalize citizens of another kingdom and teach them how to be faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom. Not that they do that work in their hearts. I mean, that's still the work of God. But as they go and they proclaim the kingdom of God, God works through the word and through the power of his Holy Spirit so that those who do not know Christ will want to become citizens of his kingdom. And the church is to give affirmation to the legitimacy of their new allegiance. We are there to naturalize. We are there to stamp passports. We are there to affirm gospel citizens. But we don't simply affirm that they are true citizens of Christ's kingdom because once in time, when they were 10 years old, they made a profession of faith and prayed a sinner's prayer and was baptized. We are to disciple them towards maturity in Christ, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is a lifelong commitment to the kingdom of Christ. Now, we've seen this before, but it bears repeating. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, page 977, 978. There it says, Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints, that is, all believers, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ until we're like Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, in whom the body, the whole body, joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
So as we teach and train, as we equip and disciple, we grow in unity, we grow in love, we grow in knowledge, we grow in service, we grow in maturity in Christ. We're no longer carried away by false doctrine and false living, but we help one another to better reflect Christ. And as we do that, we give the head a body, a visible body that the world can see. When the whole congregation is active in this culture of discipling, we grow to maturity in Christ and we make his rule, we make his kingdom known to the watching world, just like an embassy. But that cannot and that will not happen through personal autonomy. So you can say you're a Christian all day long. You can show people how you read the Bible, how you know the Bible, how you pray the Bible. People think you're a really great person. You talk about Jesus. But that is nowhere near the impact that the church has as a visible display of Christ's kingdom. Nowhere near the impact. True affirmation of citizenship true gospel witness, true discipleship, true growth towards maturity in Christ like we see throughout the book of Ephesians can only happen in the context of a local church. Same is true for discipline. We've got discipleship on one hand, but discipline on the other. We've got formative, we've got corrective. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, page 823. There's this dispute, it's arose, one man has sinned against his brother, and here's what Jesus calls for them to do. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now notice here, the goal of this confrontation is not judgment, but is the hope of repentance and faith. The desire is to regain your brother, Right? But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here we have a pattern of open, serious, and unrepentant sin. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as someone who has no legitimate profession of faith. What you do there is he's showing such a level of unrepentance that you, the church, can no longer affirm his profession of faith, and so you excommunicate him. You remove him from membership, and you withhold the Lord's Supper to him. This is not a ban to say, don't ever come around us again. You welcome him into the church, but you you say, I cannot affirm your profession of faith. And to me, you you are living as, as someone who is in unrepentant sin. But it keeps going, right? Truly I say to you. Now get this, because he's about to repeat what he just said in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, he was talking to Peter, and so all the yous were singular. But guess what? Now he's talking to the church, and all the yous are plural. And he says, what you, church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, church, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, church, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How does church discipline take place if there's no church membership, if there's no commitment of a congregation? It cannot happen. And when we look at this text, notice what court is the final judicatory here. It is not a bishop or a presbytery or a convention or a pastor. It's not an assembly, a conference, or even a board of elders. It is the church. The whole congregation is the final court of appeals to affirm who is and who is not a gospel citizen. Again, not that we can say absolutely that this person is not a Christian, but that their life is in such contradiction to their profession of faith that we can no longer affirm that profession of faith. 
Excommunication is not a scarlet letter. It is a loving warning of the dangers to come if they continue down the road they're on. Think about it like this. There's a bridge out and somebody's heading down that road and we are on the sidelines as a congregation screaming and waving our hands, begging them to stop. That's what excommunication is. It is motivated out of love and a desire to restore and to see them not come to peril. And so just like the Great Commission, as we make disciples, Christ promises that if you are truly gathered in my name to discipline this person, guess what? I am there with you. My authority is with you, congregation. We see something very similar in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, page 954. There the apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of such a kind that it is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you, church, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse four. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you, church, are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. We, the congregation, have the responsibility to protect the witness, to protect that confession, and to protect the purity of this church and to help one another to grow in holiness in the Lord. Sin is like a cancer that must be removed lest it kill the body. Now, friends, you do not remove cancer with a sledgehammer, but with the skill of a scalpel in the hope that though this surgery is regrettable and it causes deep pain, it will result in life, in healing, and in restoration. Now, friends, if time allowed, we can look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 that talks about how we, the church, are responsible to deal with elders when they find themselves in sin. We could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 that talks about how we, the church, have the privilege of restoring a repentant sinner by majority back into fellowship. We actually got to see that at this weekend. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. If we had more time, we could examine the many one another's of Scripture that give us a practical expression to this covenant commitment that we have within this church one to another. Or in the book of Jude, how we are called, all of us, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And how we are to deal with those who have perverted the grace of God into sensuality and denied the lordship of Christ with their lives. But what is clear in all of these passages is that whether we are evangelizing the lost, affirming gospel citizens into membership, discipling church members, fulfilling the one another's of scripture, or disciplining the unrepentant confessor out of membership, it is the responsibility of the whole congregation to guard the who of the gospel. And so we've seen the what of the gospel, how that leads into the who of the gospel. And now third, we need to see how that lends itself towards the we of the gospel. 
When we, by God's grace, repent of our sins, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. But friends, we are not saved to ourselves as some lone ranger, independent, outspoken, self-sufficient Christian. Now, what we see from passages like Titus chapter 2 Verse 14 is that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. We are now citizens of Christ's kingdom. But friends, let me just be abundantly clear, all right? This is not like American democracy. Okay, the church is first and foremost a monarchy, in that Christ and Christ alone is king. Not you, not me, not the Pope, nor anyone else. Christ is king. And we are obligated to deny ourselves, each and every one of us, and follow him. It's a monarchy. But second, it's also an aristocracy. In that Christ gave leaders to the church, elders and deacons, who are to direct the whole congregation to fulfill its mission and to reach maturity in Christ together. Third, it is a hierarchy in that we are not seeking to exalt ourselves over other people and lord it down upon them, but it is quite the reverse. In that we, as the church, are called to seek to edify and to build one another up, to put the interests of others before our own, seeking to serve others rather than exalt ourselves. It's a hierarchy in that we're not trying to push people down, we're trying to push people up for the glory of God and for the good of others. Friends, imagine how different our time together would be if that was truly the case. If rather than when you came here on a Sunday morning to just sort of glean what you can from the word, you actually came with the purpose, with the mentality to build each other up. Think about how different church votes would go. It can't just fall to a few. We are all called to live that way. It's only after we think about those three things that we can begin to think about democracy, right? Church is a democracy in the sense that, in the sense that we are all ultimately responsible for the direction and for the outcome of the church. We are all culpable for the what and the who of the gospel. And so when I talk about congregationalism, congregationalism is not about you having your say. Got my votes. I'm going to put it out there. It's not about me. It's about we. Congregationalism is about each member fulfilling its role within the body of Christ so that we all reach maturity in Christ together. And if your version of congregationalism isn't evangelistic, if it doesn't edify the body of Christ, or if it's such that weak members can wreak havoc upon those who are mature and to basically stop the mission and maturity of the church, then you've got something out of whack. And you can probably identify it most clearly by looking in a mirror. You see, we all have a part to play in the edification of this body. We all have a part to play in fulfilling the one another's of Scripture. We all have a part to play in walking together in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have all been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
We all have a part to play in restoring the wayward sinner, according to Galatians 6. We all have a part to play in settling disputes, 1 Corinthians 6. We all have a part to play in affirming the leadership of the church, according to Acts chapter 6 for deacons and Acts chapter 13 for elders. We all have a part to play if we, the church, are going to make the gospel visible to this lost world around us. Friends, to do that, we have to be an embassy. Not some bunch of independent tourists who happen to find themselves on the same cruise or have a similar travel guide. We've all got to be willing to play our part to preserve the who and the what and the we of the gospel. But friends, we don't do that on our own, just kind of left as a, as a group led by the Holy Spirit. That would be anarchy. That's why Christ gave the church leaders. When we're doing this well, there is no animosity or distrust among members of the church. Nor is there this us versus them mentality when it comes to the congregation and the leadership. Instead, we see passages like 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or 1 Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In an elder-led congregation, though the congregation is the final court of appeal, the elders or pastors have the authority to teach and to give oversight to the congregation. And there's no division. There's no either or or just tension and competing authority in that because we're given different types of responsibility and different types of authority. The elders oversee the day-to-day operations you think about a car, right? They're the steering wheel, the accelerator, the brake. The Holy Spirit is the ignition and the fuel. God's will is the road that we are to head down. I know I'm kind of going far with this analogy, but bear with me. When the elders are faithful to Christ, when they are leading the church to Christ, the congregation is to follow their leadership. But when they begin to go off course... When they begin to careen off of the road, that's when the congregation is the emergency break. Elders are not always right, but neither is the congregation. And so we all need humility and to use that emergency break sparingly. That's why we don't vote on everything. Praise God for that. Anybody want to go to monthly business meetings? I'm glad I don't hear a second. (laughs) (laughs) The church as a whole has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And the elders are to use their authority of counsel, not their authority of command, but authority of counsel to lead the church in its use of the keys. Friends, within the Christian church, there should be no division between congregation and its leaders. Words like submit, honor, obey, and trust should exemplify those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, their Lord. It should not be a difficult thing. Leaders are a gift from Christ to the church and he knows what he was doing when he gave them. And so friends, if you trust him, you will trust them. Yes, they are imperfect. 
And I get the idea that trust must be earned, but there's only so much of that that's true. You see, trust can never completely be earned. It can't. At some point, you have to choose to trust. You have to rest in faith in the only one who is trustworthy, in Jesus Christ. Friends, just know that we do not take that lightly. We have labored hard to be trustworthy men and we will continue to do so. Yes, we're fallible. Yes, we're sinful. But we know what we're held in account to. And the judge that we will stand before is far more serious a judge than any firing squad that this church could put together. And so we are humbly resolved to lead you to Christ to the best of our abilities. Yes, we are weak and fallible men, but we make that promise to you. But as one pastor pointed out, it is a serious deficiency in the church either to have leaders who are trustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. The basic attitude of the church needs to be either to trust your leaders or to replace them. But don't say that you acknowledge them and then not follow them. But if you make it your ambition to encourage them rather than to oppose them, you will make their work a joy rather than a burden and it will make your leaders a blessing to you. In his book, A Display of God's Glory, Mark Dever writes, how many churches languish today in an evil combination of selfish leaders and stubborn members? Such congregations usually shrink and wither away and for good reason. Some churches have wonderful congregations, but they have recognized the wrong people as pastors and elders, people who show themselves to be at best careless and at worst base charlatans. Too many of us have been involved in such churches. Some churches have wonderful godly leaders, but congregations full of complacent, self-centered people. If such a pastor can stay and patiently teach, the congregation can be renewed. If not, such a congregation will, I think, bear a heavy judgment on the final day for wounding good under-shepherds of the flock of Christ. But the healthy church, though filled with imperfect members and leaders, is marked by godly initiative and service, godly teaching and obedience, godly leadership and membership. They know the what, the who, and the we of the gospel. And they embrace the fact that the congregation is an office whose job is to guard those very things. So let's pray together that we might truly be that here at Redeemer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, for your design and purpose for the church. God, we have to confess that so often we, we're misguided in the way that we think about our relationships and our commitments to each other. Lord, we confess we have a tendency to put our own desires, our own will ahead of yours, and miss what you are doing in and through and around us. God, we desire to be a visible display of the gospel to Champaign-Urbana. We desire to love one another and to help one another to reach maturity in Christ. And God, I pray that we would want that all the more. God, open our eyes to see the ways in which we desire the things of man rather than the things of God. Help us to see the joy that comes through service and sacrifice 
for the good of your body rather than continuing to live in fear and complacency and comfort, self-seeking, self-love. God, help us to truly display the lordship of Christ and that we are citizens of his kingdom. Let's not be content with where we currently are, but strive towards maturity in him. And we thank you that we can pray this because you are at work in and through us. And you promise that you will bring to completion what you have begun in the day of Christ. And so we are looking to that in hope. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.